All right. Well, we will be continuing our study in Councils and Thoughts for the Spiritual Life of Believers by Thomas More. We have been going through that for several weeks now. It's been probably a couple of months. And uh, at this point, we are going to go ahead and move into the second part of the book. So far, we've been in the first part of the book. Uh, there was one chapter there at the end that I'm not going to cover today. I would encourage you to go and read that last uh, chapter in the first part, but it's, uh, it's mainly a summary and sort of a repetition of a lot of the things that we already talked about in the other chapters in the first part of the book. Um, so we won't be covering that, and we're going to go ahead and move on into the second part of the book and cover the first three chapters there. <coughs> So the second part of the book is titled Concerning the Spiritual Conflict in the Inner Life of Believers. And the chapters we cover today are going to lay out an introduction to that uh, overall message or overall theme. The first chapter we'll cover is uh, Concerning the Inward Conflict. Chapter 2 will be talking about uh, how do we have success in this spiritual conflict that is ongoing in the life of the believer with indwelling sin? And then the third chapter will talk about where does the conflict come from? What's the genesis of this conflict that we have between the flesh and the spirit? So here, we, you know, as we move into the second part, more is, uh, you know, obviously is changing his focus and really what we're going to talk about as we go through all of these chapters in the coming weeks in the second part of the book is that uh, struggle within the Christian life with indwelling sin. Now, I'm not going to take any polls today, but I would hope that if I were to take a poll and ask, you know, Christians, who among you still struggles with indwelling sin, I would hope everybody would raise their hand. Um, if you didn't, I would just have to assume that you've given up the struggle because indwelling sin does not go away when we are saved, right? It continues to be a, a major issue and a, a daily issue in the life of the believer. And so I, I think it says a lot that more in his book where he's providing this you know wisdom and guidance to believers, I think it says a lot that he spends an entire portion of the book, you know, part two of the book, is focused on that conflict with indwelling sin. It's clearly a, a major issue for all of us. So with that, we'll go ahead and start off where uh, in chapter one, more sort of provides the introduction to the topic. And so in that first chapter, he provides a quote from Galatians 5.17, which is one of the most succinct summaries of this conflict that the believer experiences with between you know the spiritual nature that the believer has been given in Christ but the sin that still remains and it says there in Galatians Paul writes for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do we see there very clearly exactly what we're talking about, that the spirit and the flesh are opposed to one another. 
Now, I would imagine a lot of you probably, when you hear this topic being brought up, think about Romans chapter 7, right? Because, you know, here in Galatians, we have a very succinct description of the problem. In Romans chapter 7, we have, you know, uh, an expansion on that. Paul, you know, really dwells on that a bit after talking about how we've been made anew in Christ, how we've been set free from slavery to sin and set free to be slaves of righteousness, how this is part of our nature, how we are going to walk in obedience to God because we have been given a new nature. He then goes back in chapter 7 and acknowledges and addresses this major issue that the fact that, yes, we have been given spiritual life, but the corruption of sin still very much remains and is an issue for us as believers. So I'll I'll read through that again just because it's always uh, a good reminder there. Um, In chapter 7, Paul says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul builds up to that final, you know, kind of crescendo there and says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then gives us the answer, you know, that we will be delivered through Jesus Christ. Um, And then right after that, we'll talk about this in uh, just a little bit, but he goes into chapter 8 where he takes that statement and just runs with it from there, right? Talking about how we don't have any condemnation because we are in Christ and what God is doing uh, within our lives in order to sanctify us. Um, But anyway, this sort of sets the groundwork for what we're talking about here. You can see here again in uh, Romans 7, just like in Galatians chapter 5, this concept of the war between the spirit, the new spiritual nature that we've been given, and the flesh that still remains in this life. Uh, The fact, you know, he uses the same words that uh, the spirit and flesh essentially are at war with one another to keep us from doing what we want to do. Right, our spiritual nature does give us new desires, you know, desires to uh, live in righteousness, to walk in righteousness, in obedience to God's commandments, but the flesh remains, and it often overcomes those desires and causes us to still chase after the desires of the flesh. In this first chapter, Moore walks through, and he does this in very beautiful prose, so I'd certainly recommend you read the chapter there, but I tried to 
outline just some of the specific examples that he gives of areas where we have certain desires, you know, spiritual desires for righteousness, but then on the other hand, our flesh tends to overcome that many times. So I'll read through a few of these. They're up on the screen. And uh, think if any one of them might, you know, be something that you've seen in your own life. He says that, you know, we would, we have the desire to follow after Christ in heart and life, but then when we look inside ourselves, we see how little there is of Christ in our heart or life. That we would be meek and lowly in heart is our desire, but in reality, pride of heart is so often and quickly manifested. We desire to be diligent in prayer, but how many times is it that we don't know what to ask and we don't pray as we should? Our prayers are cold. We desire to take pleasure in reading the word, but how many times have we set out to do so and considered it more of a task than of a joy? It says we have the desire to please Christ, but then if you look at what we actually do in our lives, often we're just doing things to please ourselves or to please others, to curry favor with others. Um, you know, going to the end there, he says, you know, we would desire to be very thankful and grateful toward God for the many blessings we have, but how many times, if we're honest, have we had instances where God has failed to provide us with a single thing that we wanted and we felt ingratitude completely toward God just because there was one thing that we wanted and, and he didn't provide it for us or didn't provide it in the way that we wanted it. So I went through this list and every one of them applied to me at some point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's just a reminder. He's trying to help explain what it says there in Galatians 5.17 you know, that we read. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. These are examples where our flesh keeps us from doing what we know is right, what we even want to do, and yet we don't do it. And so what is the purpose? Because we know that God has a purpose for all things, and he is working all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Why this continual struggle? Well, there's, you know, multiple answers to that. But I think it's pretty clear here, uh, you know, where Moore is going with this. He says, this, however, is not written, he's talking about Galatians 5.17, the struggle between the spirit and the flesh. He says, this, however, is not written to make us satisfied with such a state of things, but rather to show us that the life of the believer is one of much conflict amidst many opposing influences and that we have no sufficient strength of our own to overcome them and also to teach us to walk with more watchfulness, humility, and self-distrust and to go more constantly and earnestly to our Heavenly Father, seeking for the increased assistance of the Holy Spirit that we may thereby live a life of faith on the Lord Jesus who alone can enable us to war a good warfare and continually overcome every evil. It is by thus showing us what we are in sinfulness and need that the Holy Spirit brings us more lowly 
and willingly to the Lord Jesus to find our all in him. So what Moore is saying here is that, you know, one of the purposes, one of the primary purposes for this ongoing fight with indwelling sin is to remind us of our complete inability to win that war and our utter need for Christ to win the victory on our behalf and to bring us to him daily. This, this is a daily fight, so we should be coming to him daily to look for help with this battle that we're fighting. And so that sets the scene for this part of the book, this section that we're going to go through. And in chapter 2, Moore turns to uh, looking at, you know, kind of expanding on how can we have success in this fight against indwelling sin. So we'll go ahead and continue uh, picking up in chapter 2. In that chapter, Moore says, When conscious of having allowed indwelling sin to get the victory, your thought should never be, Can I be a child of God and act thus or feel thus? In other words, questioning our position as a child of God. Uh, For that will discourage you and weaken you for the conflict and leave the way open for the still further victory of sin. Your thought under such circumstances should rather be, I know I am a child of God, but how unworthily I act and how deeply grieved I am at being so soon overcome by the evil within. This will bring you in penitence and sorrow to your heavenly Father to confess and seek forgiveness of your sin. So we see here what is Moore's answer in how do we have success against indwelling sin. It's remembering our position as a child of God and going to our Father, confessing those sins, and asking for help in mortifying those sins. I think he has a very good point here that a lot of times sin makes us feel ashamed and being ashamed is not a bad thing necessarily but if our shame causes us to shrink away to fail to bring things to God in prayer because we feel such shame then that only gives sin further opportunity to continue um, deepening itself you know deepening its roots within our lives the appropriate response to that shame should be to go to God in brokenness and repentance and to bring these sins before him, confess them to him, ask for forgiveness, and ask for help in overcoming these sins. We know from 1 John 1.8, I, I love that you know, short statement there, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We know that God will forgive us our sins if we bring them to him and confess them. But how often do we fail to do that when we're really in the middle of that struggle? How many times do we just get frustrated and disappointed seeing that we are fighting and continuing to lose over and over again? Now, going back to Romans, as I mentioned, Paul, at the end there of Romans 7 you know, has talked about this continued fight with indwelling sin. And then in chapter 8, he, he also gives an answer, sort of like Moore is doing here, as to how are we going to overcome this 
you know, the remaining corruption of the flesh that still clings to us as believers. There, Paul takes the same tact. He reminds us of our position as children of God and reminds us that we are to cry out to the Lord when we're struggling and when we're suffering in order to find help. And that the Lord indeed will give us help. He gives us spiritual life. You see him talk about you know, life over and over again. God gives us eternal life. We need to go to him with these sins and confess them. So I'll read a few passages there just as a reminder of sort of how Paul moves from talking about the struggle with indwelling sin to the answer. You know, how, how is the, how are, sorry, how will this sin be dealt with? How will it be defeated? So he starts out by reminding us of our position in Christ. He says in verse 1 of chapter 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He starts by providing us the incredible encouragement to remember there is no condemnation for this sin. It has been forgiven. Let's start with that. And he continues, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We have this reminder that our sin has been dealt with. Christ has dealt with it fully and completely. So when we feel this shame, we shouldn't feel shame as those who are condemned, but rather as those who've been disobedient and who need to go to confess these sins before their father. In verse 15, Paul says again, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So there, Paul reminds us, we have not received a spirit of slavery. When we feel condemned by our sin, we should not fall back into fear, but rather we ought to approach the Lord. And he has that great line there, you know, we, we are his sons and we cry to him, Abba, Father. We look to him, you know, we cry out with praise, adoration, thanksgiving, but also confession confession of sin. Then, starting in verse 26, he says, talking about how we pray to the Lord and how we often don't know how to pray, and that sometimes keeps us from praying. You know, he gives us the encouragement here that we ought to pray because we have help, right? He says in verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So even when we don't know how to pray as we ought, we know that we have help from the Spirit. The Spirit is interceding with God on our behalf. That should be very encouraging, especially in the struggle with indwelling sin it ought to be encouraging because we know that the spirit is helping us in this way the spirit is advocating on our behalf and helping to pray you know with groanings too deep for words yes 
it really is amazing that, yes, the Lord uses our rebellion to draw us unto him. You know, the very rebellion that Christ died for, um, God still uses that to bring about good in our lives. Um, that is a, a wonderful thing. And we just, we need to constantly remind ourselves, right, because our sin tells us the opposite. We have to continually remind ourselves that that is how God uses it. And so, you know, while we're, rather than being frustrated and withdrawing from God, we ought to be fleeing to him. That's what he desires for us to do. Some more continues here, and this is still in chapter 2. The life of the believer may be much hindered by the evil within. There must, therefore, be active opposition on his part against that evil and special watchful opposition in relation to each most easily besetting sin. So here, Moore is acknowledging that, you know, yes, we are to go to the Father, but there, we have a part to play. We do need to be actively opposing sin, you know, willingly fighting against it. And he uses this term that I, you know, there's so many of these uh, terms that he uses that are really great, but easily besetting sin. Uh, I think that one is one that rings true with everyone. We can probably think of sins that are very easily besetting in our own lives, sins that continue to pop up day after day after day. Um, and he continues here, whatever you your easily besetting sin may be, you will find that the way of victory is to avoid whatever promotes its manifestation and when it manifests itself to deal with it at once, asking your father's forgiveness for it and looking to the Lord Jesus for help against it. I think that's just really great wisdom there that, you know, we probably all know what these sins are uh, in our own lives that are particular to us, but we, because we're sinful, we have a tendency to ignore them or suppress our knowledge of them. Um, what Moore says here is, rather, acknowledge it, avoid whatever promotes its manifestation, avoid putting yourself in situations where that sin may uh, rise up and have mastery over you, but then when it does happen, deal with it at once. Don't, you know, try to put it out of mind. You need to deal with it immediately, and you need to deal with it by going to the Lord and asking forgiveness and asking for help. Because without his help, we, we cannot defeat sin. So then continuing on in chapter 3, more here take some time to talk about what is the source of this struggle? Where did it come from? And so he starts out by saying, by reason of our natural relationship to Adam as our first parent, we possess not only a sinful nature called in scripture the flesh, but also a corrupt physical body and a ruined soul. By reason of the relationship of the believer to Christ, he possesses, by the quickening grace of the Holy Spirit, a new spiritual nature, which is holy, and a soul eternally saved by Christ's atoning death. He nevertheless still retains his sinful nature, the flesh, as well as his corrupt physical body. So here more starts talking about the concept that we often refer to as federal headship right? The idea that 
because we are descendants of Adam, he serves as our federal head. And because of his sin, we all likewise sin and are under condemnation for that sin. However, all of those who are born again in Christ are under his federal headship and therefore receive the blessings that come from that forgiveness of sin and eternal life. So this is what Moore is talking about here, but he's helping us remember, helping us to connect the dots that, you know, it's because of the, this federal headship, you know, having been under the federal headship of Adam first and then coming under the federal headship of Christ that we have this conflict going on. We have the, the flesh and the sin that still clings to us from Adam, but then we have the spiritual life given to us by Christ. And in this lifetime, at least for now, for believers, you know, until we're with God in glory, this struggle will continue. It's a, it's a daily war that we're in. Unfortunately, a lot of times we fail to see that we are in that war. Yes, Carlo? A new spiritual nature. So what he's saying there, he's referring to uh, the fact that when we're saved by Christ, we're granted you know, a new spiritual nature and a new life in Christ where we're enabled at that point to be able to be obedient to God, to actually do works of righteousness, which, yes, still the same person and still in the same body and still affected by sin, but now having been given a new spiritual life that we didn't have before being saved by Christ. Does that make sense, Carlo? power to overcome sin, but then also um, new desires. You know, we, we know uh, scripture talks about putting off the old and putting on the new. We know that the Lord gives us new des- spiritual desires. You know, we, he causes us to uh, desire uh, righteous things and holy things that we didn't before. So that I think that's what he's referring to when he's saying nature, you know, using that word specifically. There's a new person with new desires um, but also, as we go through a few of the scriptures here, Carlo, I think maybe that'll also help make it a little more clear what where he's coming from. New creation.
That's right. And so a, a few scriptures that talk about this. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, we see, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So the juxtaposition there that we, through Adam comes death, but through Christ comes life. Then again, in Romans chapter 5, that's where Paul spends more time talking about, you know, the federal headship of Adam versus Christ. Uh, Just part of that here we've got, starting in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So we see further commentary here from Moore. It says, The new spiritual nature in the believer is in itself perfect in all holy principles and desires, but because of being in the midst of hindering and opposing influences, the believer will often have experiences of the most humbling and self-debasing character. Through the first Adam fallen nature, so full of sin, and the first Adam death-stricken body, so full of frailties. All this but shows that our union to Christ, though perfect in God's sight, and perfect as regards salvation and vital union, will not be manifestly and experimentally perfect until the perfect spiritual nature with the ransomed soul exists in a perfect spiritual body, and the corrupt sinful nature or the flesh with the corrupt physical body are together put away forever. So what Moore is saying here is you know, what we were just talking about. I think uh, essentially we have given, been given a spiritual nature now, but we still struggle with that corruption of the flesh that remains. We won't have a perfect spiritual nature until we are with the Lord. And at that point, we'll have a perfect spiritual nature. We won't have um, any sinfulness remaining. Uh, and we will also have a spiritual body. So we've, our, we've got that concept of the already not yet that we talk about sometimes, the fact that we already are experiencing eternal life uh, in Christ, but it's not perfect yet. We haven't been fully glorified at this point. And that's why this struggle with indwelling sin remains as part of our daily life. And then going back to Romans chapter 8, we see... You know, from what Paul writes there, he acknowledges this, um, you know, this struggle and this frustration that we deal with and how it does make us long for that time when we will be with God. Um, in chapter 8, starting in verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, 
grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. There Paul is acknowledging this, this longing that we have for when we will finally be rid of sin. It won't be an issue for us anymore. And we will be with God and made perfect. He even says there, you know, he talks about these first fruits. He says we have the first fruits of the Spirit. You know, it's going back again to this concept that we already have eternal life. We already have the Spirit working within us, but we're not, it hasn't been fully complete yet. We, we still have sin remaining. And then another place where this is, where Paul addresses this um, is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In that chapter, he's talking particularly about the resurrection, about that time when we finally will um, experience, you know, what we've been longing for. He says there, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The last Adam being Christ, obviously. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So there we have that description talking about how finally at that point, the flesh, the sinful nature that comes with it, you know, our corrupt physical body, but also our corrupt sinful nature will finally be, you know, we'll, we'll be rid of that and we will be given perfect, you know, spiritual bodies and we will be um, made perfectly holy before the Lord. We will bear the image of the man of heaven, of Christ. So at that point, you know, this struggle that we're talking about will finally come to an end. But up until then, the struggle continues, the battle continues. And so we have to continue to ready ourselves for the fight. Now there, if you'll notice, you know, this, um, there in verse 45, it talks about the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Right, he, Paul there is talking about Christ being one who gives us life. Right, he's the giver of life, of eternal life. Now look what Moore says here. He says Christ is Himself the believer's life immediately in a direct and positive way. When the first Adam, before his fall, was in the perfection of life and holiness before God. He could not have been a constant and ever-present and ever-flowing source of life to his seed, for he was but a creature. This is the prerogative of the last Adam, the Lord Jesus. The believer is not merely united to Christ by the assimilation of a spiritual nature, 
wrought in him by the quickening power of the Holy Spirit, but there is a vital union between the soul and Christ himself, as he is now at the right hand of God, so that henceforth Christ himself is the believer's life. So that ought to give us great encouragement in this struggle with sin, that we know that Christ is our life and that he is giving us eternal life. He is the life giver. And it's interesting here that Moore you know, goes to, to make this point that at, even before the fall, Adam could not serve as a life-giving spirit in the way that Christ does for us. I think that's just another one of, uh, you know, examples of the, the majesty and mystery of the gospel. Um, you know, how incredible it is uh, what God is doing in working out his, the salvation of his people. It, it's, uh, it was a really good point. And so lastly, I wanted to close with a couple of additional scriptures just as, you know, further encouragement for us as we struggle with sin um, that help remind us that Christ is on our side and he does help us to, to obtain victory over sin and he does grant to us eternal life. In Romans chapter 8, once again, in verse 10 we read, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There again we see that promise that if we are in Christ, Christ is living within us, and even though our body still is dead in the flesh, we still have the corruption of sin clinging to us, God gives us eternal life. He gives us a new spiritual life through Christ Jesus. And there in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, we also read, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Saints, as we continue to struggle with sin on a daily basis, as we've talked about, it's imperative that we deal with this immediately and that we go to the the Father and confess our sins to him and ask for his help in winning victory over these sins. But we can find much encouragement in these scriptures that remind us that indeed, If we are in Christ, then Christ is living in us. And because Christ lives in us, we have eternal life and we can live by faith in him. All right, well, that is the uh, conclusion here of our Sunday school lesson. I think we have a couple minutes. Were there any other questions or comments? Things that we could cover further? Could you elaborate a bit on that?
Okay. So far, what I've seen in the book, Philip, he doesn't break it down specifically, you know, in that way, all, all in the same place. But I think, like you said, he's he's covering those concepts throughout, you know, the chapters. He but he doesn't necessarily have it broken down that way. No, that's that's a good point. All right. Well, let's go. Ahead.